0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the sixth episode in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. As you may know, every episode in this season was inspired by a request from you our listeners made on our website you must remember today's episode was inspired by a post made by a user calling themselves J Chapius, who wanted to know more about Gene Harlow Gene Harlow was the first and arguably the best sex symbol comedian of the early sound film era Today, we're going to talk about Harlow's time in Hollywood before MGM, when she was the frustrated contractual property of Howard Hughes, and we're going to talk about how MGM came into her life, and in some ways took it over, although no one exercised as much control over Harlow as her own mother. We'll talk about Harlow's three brief marriages, and her one brush with true love. And we'll talk about how she transcended the physical attributes that made her famous, to become, in many ways, the indelible face of her era. Join us, won't you, for the MGM story of Jean Harlow. Jean Harlow was Harlene Carpenter's mother's name. The first Jean Harlow had been a great beauty who dreamed of her own movie stardom. In 1924, two years after Mother Jean divorced Harleen's father, a wealthy Kansas City dentist named Mont Carpenter, Mom and the baby, as Harleen was called by friends and family from her birth until her death, moved to Los Angeles to advance the mother's Hollywood ambitions. Harleen was enrolled in a ritzy private school, where her classmates included the kids of Cecil B. DeMille, Louis B. Mayer, and Douglas Fairbanks. Mayer's daughter Irene would remember that even at age 13, her classmate Harleen had a certain way about her. She managed to make the sailor blouses of their school uniforms look sexy. It was clear even then that the blonde preteen had something that people liked to look at. But Mama Jean couldn't find work as an actress. At age 34, she had missed her opportunity to impress an industry that fetishized youth. And after two years, with no income forthcoming, mother and daughter were forced to return to Kansas City, where mother Jean soon hooked up with Marino Bello, a sleazy Italian guy who already had a wife. But not for long. In December 1926, Bello's wife filed for divorce on the grounds that her husband had, quote, repeatedly struck and beaten her. This left Bellow free to marry the elder Jean Harlow, which he did a month later. Harleen's mother moved with her new husband to Chicago, and 16-year-old Harlene dropped out of high school to follow. She soon had a beau of her own, Chuck McGrew, a 20-year-old orphan and heir to a small fortune. In September 1927, McGrew made Harlene Carpenter his teenage bride— And shortly thereafter, he turned 21 and received the first six-figure chunk of his trust fund. With no need to work, Harlene and her husband mostly just drank. By January 1928, after a Christmas celebration that lasted for several drunken days, the couple decided to change location and sailed to Los Angeles on the Panama Canal. They moved into a new house in Beverly Hills, where Harleen began hosting the luncheons and teas typical of her society set. A guest at one of these day parties would be a would-be actress named Rosalie Roy. At the end of the afternoon, Rosalie announced that she had to head out to an appointment on the Fox lot, and Harleen offered to give Rosalie a ride. While her friend was in her meeting, Harleen stood by her car waiting so that she could give Rosalie a ride home when she was done. Three Fox executives, walking across the lot, spotted this gorgeous blonde and started talking to her. When Harleen told these men that she wasn't an actress, and in fact had never really even thought about acting, they thought she was playing hard to get. What gorgeous, glamorous girl, hanging out on a Hollywood studio lot in 1928, didn't want to be a movie star? Harleen perhaps was playing hard to get in one sense. She told the people at Fox that her name was Jean Harlow. When the phone rang a few days later with an offer for work for a Miss Harlow, Harleen first told the caller that they had the wrong number. She had forgotten that Miss Harlow was her. Harleen still had no real ambitions, but when her mother, the original Jean Harlow, got wind of what was going on, she stepped into action to manage her daughter's career, transferring all of her own thwarted ambitions onto this new gene. Fueled by her mother's aggressions, in just a couple of months, Harleen signed a contract with producer Hal Roach, and soon she started appearing in Laurel and Hardy shorts. Within a few months, around her 18th birthday, Harleen asked to be released from her contract because her husband didn't want her to be an actress. But just two months after that, Harleen left her husband, Chuck McGrew. Both of these things seem to have been done at the insistence of Mother Jean, who believed that you didn't settle for the first opportunity, personal or professional, that came around. She believed her daughter needed to shake off what she already had in order to get more. Now, without a rich husband, Harleen needed movie work in order to support herself. She struggled for many months, until she was cast in a small part in the Clara Bow film, The Saturday Night Kid. Clara Bow was Paramount's reigning sex symbol of the 1920s, but she was having trouble transitioning to talkies. She was also getting older and heavier, and when Harleen arrived on set in a black crochet dress, which made it very apparent that she did not believe in wearing underwear... Beau was candid about her insecurities, reportedly saying, Who's gonna see me next to her? The actor cast as Beau's romantic interest, James Hall, certainly saw Beau's co-star. Hall and Harlow developed an on-set romance, but after the shooting of The Saturday Night Kid, they went their separate ways. She took a bit part in a picture called Weak and Willing, And he went back to the film he had been working on off and on since 1927, a World War I romantic aviation epic called Hell's Angels. Hell's Angels was the passion project and money pit of Howard Hughes, who in 1929 was only just starting to amass a reputation. He was 24 years old, and he had arrived in Hollywood four years earlier with a modest inherited oil drilling fortune in tow, determined to make a name for himself in the movies. Howard Hughes was not yet the Howard Hughes that you think that you know. He was not yet a billionaire, not yet a record-setting aviator, he was only just starting to impress as a ladies' man— And he was only notably eccentric in that he had already announced his intention to succeed in Hollywood without letting the Hollywood establishment tell him what to do. By 1929, Howard Hughes had been funneling his own money into Hell's Angels for two years. Any upstart independent filmmaker from Texas with no directorial experience or training and the willingness to throw a lot of good money after bad would probably have been made fun of by the Hollywood elite, But with Hell's Angels, Hughes was really earning his reputation as a laughingstock. Hughes was, by various reports, the third or fourth director on the film, after having fired the others and eventually deciding he could do a better job himself. At least two pilots died, attempting to execute the groundbreaking aerial stunts Hughes himself had designed. And in mid-1929, Hell's Angels was facing a new crisis— The film had been shot as a silent, but over the two years that it had been in production, silent films had been phased out almost completely. Hughes finally decided that he needed to scrap everything except for the aerial footage and reshoot the film with spoken dialogue. But Greta Niesen, the Norwegian actress who had been cast as the British sex bomb in the center of the film's love triangle between the characters played by Ben Lyons and James Hall spoke English with an untenably thick Scandinavian accent. And so, by the time Hall returned to the production for yet more filming, Hughes was on the hunt for a new actress for the role. Six months into his hunt, Hall ran into Harlow on the Metropolitan Studios lot, and he got an idea. By that night, Jean Harlow was shooting a screen test. If her acting didn't exactly blow everyone away, she definitely had a presence. My God, exclaimed screenwriter Joseph Moncure March. She's got a shape like a dustpan. The next day, Harlow met with Hughes in his office. When the meeting was over, the baby returned to her mother's car, as if in a fugue state. She said, he hired me, mommy. He hired me. Hell's Angels would become Jean Harlow's big break, but the movie almost broke her first. Primarily interested in his flying toys, Hughes hired James Whale to direct the dialogue scenes. Harlow was excited to work with Whale, but when she asked him for advice about how she should play the character of Helen, Whale dismissed the character as a pig and refused to say more. When shooting was finished, Harlow was convinced that Hell's Angels was a disaster, So was the rest of Hollywood. But everyone was wrong. Thanks in part to a savvy and very expensive publicity blitz ordered by Hughes and designed by publicist Lincoln Korberg, Hell's Angels became the movie phenom of the year, the first action blockbuster of the sound era. As part of the push, Hughes instructed Korberg to brand Harlow with a nickname. Clara Bow, her predecessor as a sex symbol had been the It Girl. Korberg and Hughes decided that Jean Harlow would be the Platinum Blonde. As a result, Jean Harlow was now incredibly famous, even though nobody thought she could act. But after Hell's Angels, Howard Hughes, with whom Harlow had signed an exclusive contract, didn't have any movies ready to go into production. Harlow didn't work at all for a year, And then, at the urging of Paul Byrne, a writer and producer at MGM to whom Harlow had long been confiding her troubles, Hughes began loaning her out to other studios, first MGM and then Columbia, with Hughes pocketing a substantial loan-out fee every time. Her first really substantive role, after Hell's Angels, came in a film called Gallagher, about a newspaper reporter played by Robert Williams, who ignores his smart career girl colleague played by Loretta Young, and falls under the spell of a rich bitch played by Jean Harlow. Gallagher was directed by Frank Capra, who is maybe exactly what Harlow needed at this point. He directs the film like he knows he's supposed to be exploiting Harlow's assets, but he's sort of too much of a prude to do so in a seriously exploitative way. There's one scene in which the camera tracks backwards to capture Harlow and Williams walking from one room into another. As Harlow's body jiggles freely under her satin gown, Williams trails behind her, literally making jokes about her ass. But Capra shows us not the ass, but Harlow's face, subtly conveying exactly what it feels like to be a woman who hears this kind of thing every day. You've never heard of the movie Gallagher, because by the time it was released in October 1931, it was called Platinum Blonde. Hughes had convinced Columbia to change the title of the picture, even though Loretta Young was the first billed actress and, in the narrative, the romantic victor. But everyone involved seemed to understand that they were at the precipice of a codifying moment— the 1930s on film would be an era of impossible glamour and luxury presented, in text or subtext, as something regular people could have access to. The same regular people who kept the movie industry going throughout the Depression, even if it meant sacrificing almost everything else. Platinum Blonde was the right title for a movie about a good guy, a regular Joe, suckered into the fantasy of sex and wealth. Who learns that living that fantasy means selling his soul. As the platinum blonde, though, Harlow didn't usually represent the born-into-wealth she embodied in this movie. She would come to represent an intermingled fantasy of security and sex, while maintaining a neighborhood girl feel that made her an accessible icon to millions of women. A lot of those women wanted to look like her, and so in the early 1930s, hair bleach suddenly became a popular thing. Harlow swore publicly that she didn't dye her own hair. But of course she did, and she touched up her natural ash blonde roots every Sunday. Her hairdresser used a combination of peroxide, ammonia, Clorox bleach, and Lux soap flakes. Women all over the country attempted to replicate the results with household bleach, often with disastrous results. Harlow's own hair couldn't take it either, but we'll get to that later. Howard Hughes threw money behind publicizing Harlow as the platinum blonde, but he still hadn't cast his contract player in a second movie. Harlow had two fans in high places who believed she really belonged at the studio that knew best how to supply movies to match a star's potential. And that studio, of course, was MGM. Nick Skank, head of MGM's corporate parent Lowe's, urged Louis B. Mayer to buy Harlow's contract from Hughes. But Mayer wasn't interested— Mayer had no intention of making enough movies about floozies to justify having an actress on his payroll who he didn't believe could do anything else. But Harlow still had Paul Byrne on her side, and he got to work trying to convince Mayer's partner, Irving Thalberg, that MGM had to have Harlow. Eventually, the two-sided attack worked and Harlow's contract was bought by MGM from Howard Hughes for $30,000 in the spring of 1932. There were two types of stars at MGM, stars that had been invented by MGM, and stars that had already had an established thing that they did before they came to MGM, who MGM then had to figure out how to make their own. We've seen how this failed, such as in the case of Buster Keaton. But in the case of Gene Harlow... Right away, Irving Thalberg rolled the dice by casting Harlow in a film that would exploit her essential talents while also changing the most famous thing about her. Red-Headed Woman was a popular novel whose main character was, to quote film censorship czar Will Hayes, "...a common little tart using her body to gain her ends." When MGM decided to turn it into a Gene Harlow vehicle, Paul Byrne hired screenwriter Anita Luz, the author of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, to turn the protagonist's man-eating into comedy. At her first meeting with Thalberg and Luz, Harlow was asked by the studio executive if she thought she could make an audience laugh. With me or at me, she asked. At you, Thalberg said. And Harlow responded, Why not? People have been laughing at me all my life. Redheaded Woman was a gamble, but it worked. It was a huge hit, and it allowed Harlow to distance herself from the hair that had made her famous in the most literal way possible. And shortly after its release, Harlow married the man who had made it happen for her, 42-year-old MGM producer Paul Byrne. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash remember. NetSuite.com slash remember. NetSuite.com slash remember. It's been said that no one, in 1932, understood what Gene Harlow saw in Paul Byrne. We talked a little bit about Byrne last week. He was a powerful player behind the scenes at MGM, and he was also sort of a notorious sad sack, and he had been one for ten years by the time he married Harlow. Some people believe he was gay and tortured by it. Some people believe he was impotent and tortured by that. He had a habit of falling in love with beautiful women, but for mysterious reasons, not consummating those relationships. Last week, we mentioned the Er Paul Byrne story, about the time when Barbara Lamar rejected him and he tried to commit suicide by flushing himself down the toilet. It's been said that history repeats itself, the first time as tragedy and the second time as farce. With Paul Byrne, it was sort of the other way around. Jean Harlow had the most sexual persona of any movie star of her day, but off screen, what she really craved was friendship and companionship. It's possible that she was drawn to Paul Byrne because he wasn't sexually aggressive. It's probably an apocryphal quote, given that Harlow wasn't known to swear much, but she was supposed to have said that Byrne was different because unlike all the other men she knew, quote, he doesn't talk fuck, fuck, fuck all the time. Actress Colleen Moore reported a much more G-rated quote from Harlow about her attraction to Byrne. All I want is to be able to sit at Paul's feet and have him educate me. But if these were Harlow's attractions to Byrne, both got old fast. Byrne's educational instincts soon brought out Harlow's inferiority complex. And not only did he not sexually objectify his wife, but according to many reports, he never had sex with her at all. Two months into the Byrne-Harlow marriage, the couple spent the Saturday of Labor Day weekend apart. There are many conflicting stories about this. The official story is that Harlow was expected on the set of the Clark Gable picture, Red Dust, early Sunday morning, and so she spent the night at her mother's house, which was closer to the MGM lot. Meanwhile, her husband spent the night at home alone, reading a haul of books he had purchased the day before— including a book on the study of glands, which was very trendy in Hollywood at the time, particularly among those who believed that homosexuality and other quote-unquote forms of deviance could be cured, and a 1786 pamphlet on phallus worship called Discourse on the Worship of Priapus. Harlow returned to her marital home that night. The butler overheard husband and wife arguing, and Harlow left, reportedly in tears, and went back to her mother's house. The next day, Paul Byrne was found in his bedroom, curled up on the floor, a fatal gunshot wound in his head, and a thirty-eight revolver in his right hand. Byrne's death would be ruled a suicide, but questions and conspiracy theories circulate to this day. The newspapers reported that he left a note, which read, Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I've done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. Underneath his name, a final sentence was scrawled. You understand, last night was only a comedy. But there's reason to believe that the suicide note was not a suicide note at all. The note was found in a guest book, which Byrne kept around the house so that famous visitors like Gary Cooper could leave signatures when they stopped by. The book was not left open to this missive from Paul. It was found when the MGM crisis team arrived on the scene after Byrne's butler found his body. Reports vary, but either MGM publicist Howard Strickling or Louis B. Mayer himself decided to present the guestbook entry as a suicide note and evidence of a tortured man's motive to end his own life. When MGM finally allowed Harlow to be questioned by detectives a full day later, she insisted she had no idea what the note meant. Meanwhile, the studio leaked an autopsy report, which included the detail that Byrne had, quote, a physical condition which left him unfit for matrimony. His genitals were underdeveloped. Two days later, the press figured out that, fit for matrimony or not, Byrne had been legally common law married to another woman at the time of his marriage to Harlow. Dorothy Millette had been living in the Algonquin Hotel in New York under the name Mrs. Paul Byrne. Apparently, Byrne and Millette had lived together for eight years in the 19-teens and 20s, a fact that they had initially kept secret from Byrne's mother, to whom he was extremely close, and who had once vowed to kill herself if she ever learned Byrne was living with a woman. When she did learn of Byrne's cohabitation, Byrne's mother did kill herself. In response, Dorothy had a breakdown. Like something out of a gothic novel, Byrne sent his common-law wife to a sanitarium, while he escaped to Hollywood and reinvented himself as the guy behind the guys who ran the most powerful studio in the world. By 1932, Millette had been living in the Algonquin, on Byrne's dime, for years. By five days after Byrne's death, Millette had disappeared. A week after that, her decomposed body was found in the Sacramento River, She had apparently jumped off of a boat. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Many people who have looked back on the evidence from the vantage point of many years in the future believe that Dorothy Millette visited Paul Byrne that Sunday night, and that Jean Harlow walked in on the two of them together. Some say Harlow already knew about Dorothy's existence, but either way, she left the house in tears. Some people think Dorothy then shot Paul, left a gun in his hand to make it look like a suicide— and then headed off on her own suicide mission. Some people think Dorothy was killed in retaliation for Byrne's murder. But most people think Paul Byrne killed himself. Maybe it was because Dorothy visited him and threatened to sue him for bigamy, which would not only destroy his own life and career, but probably irrevocably harm Harlow's as well. Maybe it was because he had reached the breaking point of hiding his own homosexuality— as some have conjectured, or some other sexual abnormality or challenge. Others believe that all or most of the stuff about Byrne's sexual dysfunction was invented by MGM after his death to increase the image of Harlow as a helpless victim and diminish any suspicions that she might have done anything herself to push her husband to suicide. We may never know what really happened to Paul Byrne. But we do know that for Harlow and around MGM, business returned to usual very quickly. A week after Burns' body was found, a stir crazy Harlow called Irving Thalberg and begged him to let her get back to work. She needed the distraction. So production resumed on Red Dust, a sexy romp boasting a notorious scene in which Harlow bathes nude in a barrel. Retakes of that scene were shot on Harlow's second day back on set after her husband's death. Since the resumption of shooting, director Victor Fleming had concentrated on long shots, in an effort to not capture for posterity the look in the traumatized widow's eyes. But when it was time for her to smolder, naked in that barrel, and say a line of dialogue describing herself as the gal who drives men mad, Harlow, trooper though she was, just couldn't do it. A cloud of suspicion hung over Harlow for a while. But six weeks after Byrne's death, the film was released and became a massive hit. In the middle of the Depression, Red Dust's gross tripled what the film cost to make, and it earned Harlow the best reviews of her career to date, establishing Harlow and Gable as a gold-minting on-screen team in the process. Harlow was at the peak of her movie stardom, and she was about to make one of her best films, Bombshell, a satire of a movie star not unlike Harlow, although maybe more like Clara Bow. Bombshell is perhaps the quintessential pre-code screwball comedy. It was, arguably, the film that invented the rapid-fire style that would become such a signature of the decade, and it did it out of necessity. In order to ensure that a 160-page script could produce a film of about 90 minutes, Victor Fleming directed scenes to play almost twice as fast as usual. Harlow proved herself not only capable of performing rapid-fire overlapping dialogue but she did it without losing a touch of her sex goddess power. Screwball comedies would allow women dressed as sex goddesses to step off their pedestals and compete on the same level as men, the level of banter and one-upsmanship and kooky physicality. And Jean Harlow was the first actress to prove herself to be a genius at it. As far as the public was concerned, Harlow had overcome the tragic death of her husband, and she was stronger than ever. Bombshell grossed twice what it cost to make, and it wasn't even Harlow's biggest hit of that year. Dinner at Eight, in which she had a smaller but indelible part as the floozy wife of a boorish rich guy, had been a mega blockbuster. Certainly, by the time Bombshell was released in the fall of 1933, Harlow was the biggest female star at MGM if not in Hollywood on the whole but what no one knew what even some people close to her didn't fully understand was that inside jean harlow was slowly falling apart She fell for a married boxer named Max Baer, and when Baer's wife threatened to name Harlow in divorce proceedings, MGM encouraged Harlow to hastily marry Hal Rawson, the cameraman on many of her films. Harlow and Rawson were married for about seven months, much of which they spent apart. Three weeks after the wedding, Harlow was rushed to the hospital to have an emergency appendectomy. After two weeks in the hospital, Harlow's mother insisted that instead of returning to her husband, the baby should continue her convalescence at her mother's house. Harlow never moved back in with Rawson. Mother Jean's insistence on supervising her daughter's recovery was in part a ploy to end her marriage, and in part a show of serious concern, although not over Harlow's surgical recovery so much as her alcoholism. After Burns' death... The baby had started drinking much more heavily, and her mother believed her drinking was making her sick. Actually, the drinking may have obscured other health problems, and Mother Jean's control over her daughter was by no means grounded in a healthy outlook. Jean Harlow Sr. was an intermittent Christian scientist, but above all, she was a capitalist. When Jean gained a little weight, her mother would put her on a diet of a single scoop of cottage cheese, a slice of pineapple, and one shredded carrot per day, which surely could have led to anemia, making the already sickness prone Harlow even weaker. By 1936, Harlow was starting to look like a casualty of her lifestyle. Her face was puffy and gray, she was always tired, and her belly seemed swollen. And thanks to 10 years of weekly bleaching, if not other health issues as well, her hair was starting to fall out in clumps. Harlow's physical changes, her hair loss and diminished luminance, compelled the studio to give her a minor makeover. The platinum blonde was given wigs, and her remaining hair was given a dark blonde rinse. And in the process, she was rebranded the Brownette. Less than ultra-glamorous and certainly anti-trampy roles followed. In the excellent romantic roundelay, Libelled Lady, Harlow played the long-suffering fiancé of Spencer Tracy, while Harlow's then-real-life love, William Powell, wooed rich princess Myrna Loy. Early in her career, Jean Harlow's gowns, though skin tight enough to make it readily apparent that there was only skin underneath, always seemed to fall open in the right places. She was the queen of side boob. In Libeled Lady, it's co-star Myrna Loy, whose browlessness seems brazen, while Harlow is suspiciously fussy-looking and often covered up in long sleeves and big furs, although the film's characters still treat her like a dumb blonde until a final scene in which she tells them all off for underestimating her. The new Harlow was more fully on display in Wife vs. Secretary, in which she played the gorgeous but completely morally upstanding clerical assistant to Clark Gable, who is truly in love with wife Myrna Loy and doesn't want to cheat on her. Loy's suspicions build, until Harlow, looking more like Ginger Rogers than herself, gives a speech about how lucky Loy is to be married to a decent guy. These more mature films reflected where Harlow wanted to be in her personal life. She was deeply in love with William Powell, but Powell, who was divorced from Carol Lombard, didn't want to get married again and certainly not to Jean Harlow, who he seemed unable to distinguish from her screen persona. You don't marry someone half of America wants to sleep with, he said of his girlfriend, who he'd string along for over three years. Harlow told her friend, Dorothy Manners, that she felt the romance was one-sided. I'm the one who does all the giving. Baby, Manners said. All men do that. Harlow responded, He's breaking my heart. Depressed and still drinking, Harlow was in bad shape, and she got worse in March 1937 when she discovered she needed to have all four wisdom teeth removed. Her mother didn't think she could handle four separate operations, so Mother Jean found a dentist who was willing to extract all four teeth at once. After the third tooth was removed... Harlow's heart stopped beating, briefly. She managed to recover enough to report for work on her new movie, Saratoga, but two months after the surgery, she was still draining fluid from her infected mouth. On the set of the film, in late May, she started complaining of abdominal pain. She went home for the weekend to Powell's mansion, and spent the weekend in bed with what everyone thought was the flu. On Wednesday... Now vomiting and becoming delirious, Jean was finally seen by a doctor, who diagnosed a swollen gallbladder and prescribed dextrose injections. A couple of days later, Clark Gable visited and was shocked to see that Harlow looked to be swollen to twice her usual size, and there was a rotting smell emanating from her mouth. A different doctor came over that night and declared that the first doctor had misdiagnosed Harlow. It was her kidneys that were the problem, not her gallbladder. The fluids that had been prescribed by the previous doctor were now killing her. Today, Jean Harlow would benefit from antibiotics, dialysis, or even a kidney transplant. Then, two days after her correct diagnosis on June 7th, 1937, Jean Harlow died. It all happened so fast. Or maybe it had been happening slowly for years. And by the end of it, the baby had stopped fighting. In her last days, a visitor to her bedside told her that she'd get better. Possibly delirious, Harlene said... I don't want to. It seemed impossible that someone so beautiful and so young, whose screen presence was so full of energy and vitality, could have died. Just like that. Maybe that's why rumors persisted that there was something else going on. Some rumors had it that Harlow's internal organs had been damaged in a wedding night beating at the hands of Paul Byrne. Others said her sickness was alcohol-related, which it probably wasn't at its root, although she had mistaken headaches, which could have been warning signs for hangovers, thus letting herself go without treatment that could have saved her. But the most Hollywood rumor was the one that held that Jean Harlow had died from long-term exposure to the chemicals she used every Sunday to get that platinum blonde hair. It's easy to see why this one would appeal. People who love Hollywood love stories about how the things Hollywood people do to become stars end up destroying them. In truth, Jean Harlow's hair-bleaching habit had destroyed only her hair. And that hair made her immortal, helping to invent a new lineage of Hollywood star, the blonde sex goddess. In 1937, the year of Harlow's death, an 11-year-old girl named Norma Jean would identify herself as one of Jean Harlow's biggest fans. Within 15 years, Norma Jean would have remade herself in Harlow's image, even visiting Harlow's own hairdresser under the name Marilyn Monroe. But that is a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research intern is Allison Gemmel. And this episode was edited by Henry Malofsky. Special thanks to our special guest, Gabe Roth, who played Paul Byrne. For more information about this episode and other episodes, including show notes containing the sources used during the research process, please go to our website, you rememberthispodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod. And if you like the show, please tweet about it or tell your friends any way that you can. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and rating and reviewing the show there really helps people find out about it. Before we go this week, I'd like to thank a number of listeners who have donated to the show over the past month. They are Anne Pigeon. Linda Cowgill, Jonathan Remoren, Mark Ramsey, Eric Babe, Megan Jones, Daniel Engler, Robert Barry, Linda McCauley, Brad Hayward, Shirley Benish, Jason Roby, William Cluden, Adam Hendricks, Laura Kuhn, Timothy M. Sailing, and David Sansegundo Bello. Thank you guys so much. All of the donations help me to pay people to help me create this show. If you'd like to donate, you can find a donate link at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Gina Hollow died the other day. These are the words I heard. I said, "My mother was sing on her bedside cry. I bleed in my soul. My child is dying. <speaking throughfish>